This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Andrea Gothels, Digital Preservation and Repository Services Manager at the Harvard University Library. Well, Andrea, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, sure. Tell me about your background first, Andrea. I know that in your early education, you were studying architecture. Is that correct? Can you tell me about the architecture studies? So I began my career in in architecture, and um, I was working in sustainable construction and development. And I liked it for a while, but then I I think I, I got a little bit disillusioned in the field. I liked the idea of architecture, but the practice of it was a different reality, and I, I found that all the raw materials that went into the older, beautiful uh, buildings aren't really available anymore. And at least where I was working, there was more of an emphasis on the bottom line and um, less of an emphasis on the aesthetics of, of architecture. And so I got a little bit disinterested in the field and decided that maybe I should move on to something else. And so from there, I, I thought, well, maybe it would help if I changed scales. And so I went from architecture to urban and regional planning and geographic information systems, thinking that, well, well maybe a change in scale will, will bring bigger challenges. Just to back up a little bit, sustainable development is what exactly? Sustainable development is... Um, and you don't really hear that much about it anymore, at least I don't. But when I was working on it, it was it was trying to look at the the big picture. And so when you look at materials, you think about, well, what, what were the energy resources that went into harvesting this or creating this? And so you think about the social and economic and environmental implications. You say you don't hear much about it anymore. What, what? I don't, but, you know, that it might, that field might still exist, maybe under a different name, or um, I just, I guess since I haven't been working in that area anymore, I don't, I don't really look into it. Mm-hmm. But it, certainly there's, there's a lot of talk about green development. Yes. It sounds similar to green development. Right, right. Yeah. So where did GIS come from? GIS. So I went into urban regional planning, and there, where I was at the University of Florida, there was this GIS lab. And and that was my, my really my first introduction to using technology to solve problems. And so if you're not familiar with GIS, it's using data sets and technology to be able to solve problems that have a spatial component. And so that's where that was my first introduction to um, technology being able to solve human problems. And so from there, I was drawn more and more towards technology, and I ended up going into computer science. The GIS lab, was it just there? Was it just kind of an add-on class that you took? Or how did you stumble into it? Well, at the University of Florida, um, within the Urban and Regional Planning Program, it's, it's actually it's one of the core programs. They have a lot of contracts there from the Florida Department of Transportation, the um, Environmental Planning Department. They, um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of opportunities to learn there, and I think it was just... It's a big part of the program there. They actually have the largest set of uh, Florida geographic data. Um, they house it and, and they um, deliver it from that lab. So, did that come natural to you when you started uh, when you started studying GIS systems? Did you well, just grasp it right away? And was it a big aha? The 
technology, maybe not so much. What I did grasp is um, from architecture, I think I already had a, um, a mindset for system thinking, and so it translated well into thinking, I think, about things and how they overlap. So I think there was there was a lot that transferred there from architecture. But technology, I was a little bit more hesitant, actually, about at first because it, it's kind of funny because my experience from architecture is that I actually resented technology a little bit because when I went through school, we were drawing by hand. And then when I started working in the field, there was a change over to computer-aided design systems and, and all the hand-drawn drafting that was becoming obsolete and I, I kind of really appreciated that part of it and saw it almost as an art form and that was being taken away by, by technology but then when I went into GIS things turned around because then I realized technology actually can help humans solve problems it doesn't have to be something that's negative it actually can be used in a positive way it, it sounds like it, it, it was an incredible disappointment and that you just said uh, about the, the materials, you know, that they weren't using older materials uh, in, in architecture. And so, you know, there's the old system of hand-drawing things, and they're not using the old materials. It really was. <laughs> 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 it didn't help that I was, at that time, I was traveling, too, in Europe, and I was looking at all the beautiful buildings that just are not created anymore. Like I said, I like the idea of architecture. It's just the realities, and especially how it's done today that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> was it just time off travel or taking some time off at school between classes, between years? Right, and to finally see the, the architecture that I had studied. So this is the end of the 90s, right? You're, you're doing all this towards the end of the 90s. Yes. And so as you start entering, studying technology, start you know accepting technology as a, as a useful tool, it's everywhere. It's just yes. exploding. The Internet's exploding. So what happened next? Where did you uh, go to school for your computer science degree? I went to University of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually, I was, I was in a Ph.D. program in architecture thinking that I could just take computer science classes and that way learn more about technology to move towards where I went. But then I started to realize almost everything that I was interested in actually wasn't in the architecture or, or urban and regional planning. It was actually over in computer science. Mm-hmm. So I just I went ahead and made the transition and ended up getting a master's degree at, um, also at University of Florida in computer science. And within that program, what I was focused on was kind of what I think of as, as almost like the humanities branch of computer science, but it's the human-computer interaction, the visualization, those kinds of things that are geared towards helping humans deal with technology. Was, was that a big transition to uh, be in the midst of all the engineering types, the computer engineering types, or did you feel at home? It was, but, um, but I actually really loved it because I felt for the first time that I was really being challenged intellectually in a way that I hadn't been in some of these other fields that I was in. So from there, you went to, uh, uh, you did work with the, is it the Florida? Florida Center for Library Automation, mm-hmm. or SCLA. They, um, so I think um, I was just at the right place at the right time, and the FCLA, they were advertising a position that was um, made available through an IMLS grant. They needed somebody to analyze file formats 
and to create what they were calling action plans for their new um, Florida Digital Archive. And so I went and I and I interviewed there at FCLA, and um, in the interview session, it was it actually turned out to be kind of like a brainstorming session about you know teaching me what the problem of digital preservation was, and you know thinking about what would we do with these obsolete formats. So it. I felt really comfortable from the very beginning there, and I felt like this is an environment where I could really fit in. That's a very pivotal moment, for, well, not moment, but a pretty pivotal period of time for you because everything you do now, is it kind of stems from that time. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I think I was at the right place at the right moment and finally found something that I could use my skills and my interests, and that challenged me. So tell me what you did do. If it, is it the FLC? FCLA? FCLA. Um, so they were just starting this grant from IMLS, and I researched different file formats that they um, needed to preserve in the, in this new repository. And so I think I might have started with TIFF. We started with the most common formats, and they wanted to for me to produce plans for each one of these formats. So what what are we going to do long term for each one of these formats that are in- introduced into our repository? And so in order to create these plans, what I did was I created what I called background reports. And so I would read the specifications, look at everything I could think of to to try to analyze, you know, is is this a complicated format? Is the specification open? Is it well-supported in software? And, And try to analyze what I thought the challenges of this particular format would be. And so I produced a series of action plans and then associated action plan background reports for some different file formats. So that was my main uh, role, but at the same time I also was helping to design and develop the um, repository they were building there called Dates, Dark, or the software is called Dates, Dark Archive in the Sunshine State. What year was this, Andrea? That was the early 90s. Wait, no, early 2000s. Early 2000s. Yes. I'm never sure what to call it. The aughts doesn't sound yeah. right, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the early, the early part of the last decade. And it, were you working in a vacuum in Florida, or what, what else was being done in the field of uh, format preservation at the time? Well, there were the um, there was the work being done at Library of Congress, the um, uh, the format research as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so th- as part of that work, they were defining. Um, criteria for evaluating formats as well as um, also assessing formats. Um, but there, there, weren't a, there weren't a lot of actual practical um, plans being made around formats at that time. And so um, Priscilla Kaplan from SCLA, I think that she was, when she wrote the IMLS grant, I think that that was um, kind of an innovative thing is just to say, okay, we're just going to jump right in and we're going to create these plans based on formats because I think in a lot of other places it was still more theoretical mm-hmm. and they weren't there weren't actually plans being created. How many of you were, were working on it? What, you and Priscilla and how many others about? There were, when, when I started there was a, um, a main developer, Chris Vickery, and um, there was another developer so there were, I think there were three of us working on the dates software, and then I was working on the, the plans for the um, formats, and then we had Priscilla, you know, of course, um, helping with the whole process. Mm-hmm. 
And so the repository, uh, tell me about your work on the, on the repository. So, um, so dates, the, um, I, th I believe now they're on the second generation of that software, but um, it was created with the intention that migration was going to be the strategy, format migration was going to be the strategy um, for that repository. So it has, um, um, w within the software, it has that a, lo a lot of um, uh, work assumes that. So there are um, some format identification pieces in it, and I think there's some, there's some normalization that happens at ingest, so some formats will be um, tr uh, transformed into other formats. Um, and it, it's all based on OAIS, so we have the, um, the submission information packages and the AIPs and DIPs, et cetera. And, and you mean that migration is going to be the strategy as opposed to what, emulation? Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, I don't think that's been embraced by many people. Still, no, but I, I think it's it's changing a little bit with the the more um, people get into web archiving, mm -hmm. because um, I think format migration is um, works really well, especially when you don't have a lot of interconnected content. Mm -hmm. But when you get into websites and things where you have all this interconnected content, it becomes harder to isolate a piece of that and say you're going to transform part of this and it's not going to affect the rest of it. Right. So then you start to think, well, maybe emulation's a better solution. Right. You can just emulate the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. and, and digital preservation, of course, um, the early 2000s digital preservation is, is an expanding field uh, in general, in, in, the, in the bigger sense. So uh, at, at FCLA, uh, so you've got the repository, the, uh, the, format, the format repository, and, and dates. Were you doing web archiving there as well? Was there any talk of web archiving? No, there wasn't, and I'm not sure that they're they're even thinking about that yet. There, I mean, they they may be, mm -hmm. but web archiving, no, that that we weren't thinking about that. So Harvard, how did you uh, how did Harvard come about, or how did you how did you get to the point where you wanted to work for Harvard or, or moved over to Harvard? Well, what happened was my husband was also working down in Florida, and um, he he got a um, a job opportunity to work for Boston University. And so I, I think at first what I was thinking is that I could still work for FCLA from a distance, mm -hmm. but um, um, I ended up interviewing here at at Harvard, um, and I had already I already knew some of the people who worked in this office from conferences. Mm -hmm. And I, I think working on other projects, so um, so I interviewed here and then um, made the transition and started working here. And here is which division? It is the it's called the Office for Information um, Systems. Mm -hmm. It's it's within the Harvard um, Library, so it, it's the central part of the Harvard Library. It's, we provide the technology for things like the central um, catalog and um, um, some of the e-resource negotiation and the the main preservation repository, things like that. Mm -hmm. Then now that introduces a whole, a whole new element working in libraries. So, what was that like for you? Yeah. Um, so, as much as I liked working at FCLA, it, it actually helped me a lot to to move to a different place because it helped me to see that th things, you know, preservation can be looked at at different way, in different ways, and can be the content can be modeled differently. And there's, you know, there's a variety of ways that you can do this, and it, I think it helps. 
um, to see it from a different perspective. And so, so when I moved here, um, I needed to adjust my thinking about, you know, how, how things were seen here. And then I started um, helping to develop the preservation repository here mm -hmm. called the DRS, the Digital Repository Service. Were there any similarities between the uh, DRS and the and dates at FCLA? Not, not a lot. No, I mean, other than of, of course you need the the ingest um, software and and you know so the basic framework is this, was the same, but the content was modeled very differently, and there were a lot of things to to relearn to adjust to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What was the biggest challenge for you when you when you got to Harvard? It sounds like you, you know, you you had a, you had a lot to learn about. But what was the what was the biggest challenge for you? Hmm, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> there, well, there were a lot of things to adjust to. I mean, I I lived in the South my entire life, and this was my first time living in in a you know kind of a cold place. And <laughs> <laughs> of course, the culture was different. Yep. Uh, everything was different up here. But I, I like to learn new things, and I'm not, I'm not sure I could think of anything specifically that was the, the main challenge. It, it, there was just, everything was new. So, so you get to Harvard, and uh, you're involved with the development of their, uh, their, their repository, the DRS? Yes. And w was it the GDFR? Was that in existence at the time? It was... Um, the format registry, the the global digital format registry. Right. I I think that at the time it was probably still in in the analysis idea stage. Mm -hmm. um, at at one point we did. Um, um, I th I think what happened was it took a few years to get funding, to find funding to get that project underway, and then um, it did receive Mellon funding. But I think that was um, I I was already here at Harvard. Um, when we finally did get funding for it, mm -hmm. and so, like the repository, was that was that an extension sort of related to what you did at FCLA, or, or was that totally new? Uh, were you in on the on the planning stages of the format registry? I I had always heard about it, but I, I didn't work I didn't work closely on it until um, I, I forget what year it was, but it was um, the year that uh, Steve Abrams left. Um, Harvard and went to CDL. Mm -hmm. So, he, so he was managing the project, and then um, when he left, um, I, I inherited the project and started managing it. And that that was the first time I worked really closely with the project. Mm -hmm. Were there any CD? <laughs> were there any <laughs> any similarities in in the approach to you know? It sounds like you designed not a system in Florida, but uh, an approach. I forget how you described it, but it was a, it was a way of of defining the formats and, 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 and uh, documenting the formats. Were there any similarities at all between what you did in Florida and the, what, what Steve had, uh, as Steve and his team had done for GDFR? Was it a whole new, did you have to relearn from scratch? Was it totally foreign to you, something you had to it, learn it from wasn't, scratch? It wasn't foreign. Um, so the, the concepts were all the same, the, bu the buckets of information. Mm -hmm. It, you know the metadata information that you would record about a format. A lot of it was the same, um, but the work in Florida was um, was a lot of research and kind of filling the buckets with information about formats. Whereas the GDFR is more building up the system so that 
you so that you have a place to put the information. Yes, sir. If that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But you still have so to plan for that information arriving. You still have to right. anticipate what's going to be arriving. And what you want to record about yeah. the format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which gets you into the metadata side of it, and you were you were working with premise was premise at the time or a little later when I was down at Florida um, was when the the first version of premise was being um, uh, designed and and I did help with that our our experience with um, building dates um, helped us to, to to add some information to to what was being planned for premise mm -hmm. so I, so I was able to contribute to that. So as you as you settle into Harvard and working for OIS and and the library, um, the university library, you know, you're getting deeper into the library world. So that was yes, that was fine with you. Everything went fine. Um, yeah, that was that was fine. Um, so I was, um, you know, the library is a, a big place. <laughs> There's a lot of different <laughs> areas, <laughs> um, and I and I think that I've always stayed in the the. The digital content realm of it, and uh, you know, tried to stay more in the preservation part of it, and and uh, you know, I, I have, I, I am exposed to the you know all the other systems, the discovery systems, and and things like this, but um, but I you know I I, I I concentrate my work in the other in the, in the digital library and digital preservation mm -hmm. part of it. No, aside from the uh, the uh, format registry, what was going on at the time when you arrived? As far as preservation, actual the, the, there's the you know the uh, the DRS, but did the DRS you know is it looking for was it long term a long term uh, uh, preservation involved in the in the repository? Yes, the DRS it was always conceived as a place for um, for content that has permanent um, scholarly value. Okay. And when I when I first arrived here, there was um, so it had been put into production. I think in October two thousand, and so it was already um, showing us it's showing its age when when I arrived. Mm -hmm. And so um, immediately that you know we began planning for the next version of the DRS, which we called DRS two. Mm -hmm. Catchy name. Was, what, it's, a ca it's a catchy name, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there, we we actually had a, a few years of planning um, for this next version of the repository, which which actually right now it, we're implementing. Mm -hmm. so, so it took it took a lot of time to to plan for this next version of the repository, which has a a lot more pr preservation functions than the original. Well, now that's can can you talk talk more about that because that's a very big deal. You know, migrating content is one thing, and file yeah. formats is one thing. But you're migrating a system. We're migrating a system, and and the thing is that um, this this system has a lot of users. So the uh, so the um, the libraries, archives, and museums around Harvard are the depositors and the steward long term stewards of this content. And so there were a lot of people who understood the the old system and the old concepts. And so we're we're not only migrating the content into the new system, we're kind of migrating the people <laughs> and migrating their understanding uh, of the content, and that that's a big deal, I I think. Um, so the the underlying data model has changed a lot in the new system, and the way we package metadata has changed completely. All, all almost all of our metadata schemas have changed. Mm -hmm. um, the new systems, you know, they're all changing. So. So everything's changing. As far as the people are concerned and the users, is that a is that a UI thing? Is it just a matter of 
doing an intelligent interface that you know won't, won't throw people off or it's it is partly UI we we are lucky to have a person in-house who um, she uh, her background is in uh, the graphic arts but she does the she's an expert in usability mm-hmm. and so she helps us with the, with the interfaces of the new system to try to help people understand the um, and transition to the new concepts and the new metadata um, but we also um, as part of this um, this new rolling out this new repository we have a a team that it, that what they do are they're planning the rollout and they're planning the training um, for the users and um, we're trying to figure out how ha- how to do this training um, and what what types of material we need to put together for it so it's a uh, there, there's a lot of planning on the user side just to get them ready for, for the new system. Are you planning beyond that as well, Andrea? So in thinking now of this as not modular and extensible, I'm not even sure if that's the right word, but somebody's going to have to do this again in 10, 20 years. Yes. So are you, how, how are you planning for, for that? And again, emphasizing that this is a very big deal to migrate a system, a huge system like this. So yes. How do you plan for the next time? Well, we're, what we're doing is, and I, and I think this is probably common in a lot of other repositories, is that you're, we're thinking of, of the content itself as the thing that migrates from system to system. So the content is, is more encapsulated in this next version. Each, um, each object has its own set of metadata in a METS file, and it will have its entire history, um, you know, since it was... Since it was introduced to the repository, you know, in in this file, and so we're we're doing what we can to make it so that this this thing can move to the next version repository or a different repository in the in the future. To know we have a lot of uh, loose ends of, of things that you're involved in the, the format registry. Well, let, let's talk about the uh, the uh, movement from the GDFR to the UDFR. Um, yes. At the at that time, I guess the other important international and we haven't really talked much about international stuff we've concentrated mm-hmm. mostly on Harvard but all of your work and everything that you've you've mentioned so far has some kind of uh, uh, have uh, there you have colleagues internationally that are doing the same somewhere else and you're working mm-hmm. on international standards um, can you tell me about the transition from the global digital digital format registry to the unified yes Digital so format registry. When we when we uh, finished the um, the first prototype of GDFR, mm-hmm. we um, we were trying to think about well, what should we do next with with this registry? What's the next step for this? You know, moving beyond this prototype to a, to a real system. And we had um, Dale Flecker, who was here in the office. Um, he and I we we talked to a lot of people um, throughout uh, the U.S. and Canada and internationally and we, we asked them well you know what, what what should we be doing now and some people were saying well you know we already use pronom or um, we 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 like the idea but we don't want to have um, the community is not big enough to support more than one registry um, and we'd like we like the ideas of GDFR but we want it to be you know something that's um, community owned um, and a registry that anybody can contribute information to, um, but we, we don't need to have this, you know, these multiple registries. And so we started talking with the UK um, National Archives 
about Pronom and, you know, what did they think? And and they um, thought that it would be a good idea to um, combine our efforts um, because they saw the benefit of having um, a lot of people be able to contribute format information and, you know, not just not just their institution having to do it, but, you know, kind of spreading the work throughout the world. And so we um, put together this, this concept, the UDFR, the Unified Digital Repository, and um, worked on the requirements for it and put together a proposal for implementing it, which was um, funded by the um, Library of Archives through the NDIP program. And so now the work is being done over at CDL um, under Steve Abrams' um, supervision. He's hired a great team of people who are implementing the, um, you know, finally putting this UDFR into production, which is scheduled to be in production next, I think, next January. How was that to blend together the GDFR and, and Pronom? Were there any outstanding differences, or were there... You've done it, clearly you've done it, and the UDFR is, is well on the way, but what was that like taking two enormous international systems and blending the, them um, The data models were very similar because um, in the past they had been, um, I, I think the GDFR, an early version of the GDFR model was, was based on the Pronom, an early version of the Pronom data model, so they already had a lot of similarities. Um, there are some differences between them, um, and those the differences aren't quite ironed out yet, um, but the um, I think overall it it, it wasn't there, it wasn't that difficult. So they're compatible. Um, they are they're, they're, they are compatible. Yeah. I, I think that the bigger challenges are are um, will come. Um, things like identifying uh, or just how does the community decide exactly what a format is? Um, things like that because um, you know this is the content in there is, is the real part of the registry and you know for instance somebody might model content um, at a very granular level mm -hmm. and somebody else might do it at a broader level and, and you know how do we resolve these intellectual um, differences of opinion <laughs> 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 those will be the harder problems I think and when you say the community you're of course talking about the international community right you're yes, talking about right. representatives from uh, from, from Asia, Latin America, Western Europe. Right, right. So the, the digital preservation community, I mean, we are, I think we're spread across the world, but it's actually still a fairly small community. Yeah. And th things like the um, format registry, um, we really don't need to have m multiple of these, I, I don't think, because there's we have so many challenges and um, things that we can share, you know, that can be common utilities, I think we should. And that way we can concentrate our, our time on, on building out our infrastructure to things that we don't already have. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it just makes a lot of sense to pool our resources and to build common utilities where we can. Yeah, and I would, I would imagine that you don't get a lot of, uh, of uh, resistance to that, too, because, <laughs> you know, especially for emerging, for, for institutions, cultural institutions that are, are just tackling or in the early stages of tackling their own digital preservation efforts, they want to move quickly, and having things in place makes it an awful lot easier than inventing your own thing in the back room and insisting that you have to, you know, do it that way. Right. right. Well, tell me about so tell me about web archiving. 
tell me about what Harvard is doing at Web Archiving, or what was going on when you when you arrived for Web Archiving. What did they What did they archive? Well, for for Web Archiving, so um, we had this uh, grant program within the library called LDI, the Library Digital or Library Digital Initiative. I think it's for, um, and it was. Um, so I think every year we had a round of projects, and almost you know all the early ones were digit digitization projects. So um, you know digitizing analog content, and then um, there started to be more interest throughout the university in preserving born digital content. And so we were trying to figure out what the first born digital um, type of content we should we should uh, try to um, start solving the problems around and. We were debating, I think, around starting email archiving or um, web archiving. And we looked at the two of them, and there were more people already in the world doing web archiving, so we felt like there would be tools and there would be you know, experience and knowledge we could learn from versus email archiving. It seemed there were, there were less people doing it, and there's all the privacy-sensitive data mm -hmm. content around email. So... Um, so we started with uh, web archiving, and we um, created a pilot project with uh, some of the partners around the university, um, some of the archives and libraries, and um, put together a system using the um, International Internet Preservation Consortium tools, the um, you know the Heritrix web crawler, et cetera, and um, put together a system here at Harvard for d for doing um, web archiving. And and what um, I know at the Library of Congress, for example. Um, uh, there are subject matter e experts that determine what to archive, which which mm -hmm. websites to save. The library itself, OSI and and, and NDIP, uh, they'll decide what what collections to have. You know, Katrina or, or, or whatever. How has that decided at Harvard? Right now, it's it's decided um, within um, individual um, archives and libraries, so it's it's not a central decision. Um, so, so we do have um, we have the university archives. Um, they it's important to them to archive the university website, the Harvard website, mm -hmm. and so that that's what what they've chosen to archive. We have um, a women's study um, library and archive who are um, archiving women's blogs, which is a continuation of their collecting of women's diaries. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a. Um, uh, Reichauer Institute, which is collecting uh, websites about the constitutional debate in Japan that's, that's been going on and is expected to continue to go on. So they're very kind of specialized collections. Um, that's the way it's, it's been done to date, but um, we're also um, here at Harvard in the middle of a library reorganization. And so I, I don't know um, after that what will happen if, if we will have a central unit that can make some of these collection development decisions or if it will remain, you know, on the outskirts because especially in areas like web archiving, it really would benefit to have a, um, a central unit, as you know, as well as these local decision-making units who could decide, okay, we need to to archive these things, these um, material that's, that's, you know, broadly um, valuable to scholars or, or we think it will be. Um, but right now, that's that's not the case. We don't have any central. And you know, it, it, at times of crisis, like the um, uh, what's being called the Arab Spring, you know, mm -hmm. when you when you turn on the news and all of a sudden something incredible happened overnight. At times like that, 
you prefer to start crawling quickly. Yes. But in a large institution, which you and I both work for, <laughs> things don't move quickly. <laughs> Often there there are procedures that you need to go through and permissions and processes. So right. it would right. help to be able to make quick decisions in that regard. And do yeah. you do your own crawls at Harvard, or does the Internet Archive do it for you? We we do our own crawls using the Heritrix web crawler. We have a um, a system of crawlers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are some collections that some of the curators are interested in right now that have been crawled by third parties. Mm-hmm. Um, there's three of them that I know of right now. So, so it, it, it's probable that um, in the next few, few years we'll start receiving collections crawled by, by other um, organizations or institutions. But, but right now we're just crawling our own content. And what's, now what work do you do at, um, at the IIPC? I'm the Harvard representative, so I'm I'm within the preservation working group. And what's what's going on with the preservation working group currently? We are we're, we're um so there's there's we're working on we we call them work packages. I think we have um, there's less than ten work packages that we work on mm-hmm. per year, and um, we're building a, a a set of what I kind of think of as, as knowledge bases um, to. Um, around uh, preserving web content. So, for instance, one we're working on is um, building a risk assessment tool. Um, So what are the risks associated with preserving web content? And um, this is an online tool we're working on that will help each of our institutions analyze the risks and also compare um, how we've assessed risks to how other institutions have, have assessed the risks so we can, you know, learn from each other and, you know, figure out as a group what our risks are. Um, there's other knowledge bases like that um, that we're working on as well. Um, but things like this risk assessment tool, I think, are going to help us prior- prioritize our work w- within the group, um, especially, you know, where, where we agree on um, high risks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and tell me about email archiving, uh, Andrew. I've, I've never yeah. heard... Well, I haven't heard much about work in the field of email archiving. Is that... Isn't it just a, a matter of saving the the stuff from the email server? Well, email archive, it, it could be. You know, if, if you work within an institution and you're only archiving your institution's um, email, it could be as simple as, you know, saving the email from your web server. But um, so um, we started this pilot project, let's see, maybe a couple years ago now. And um, so our requirements are that we need to be able to save email that um, is coming from many different email servers, some of them within Harvard, some of them outside of Harvard, um, some of them not even on email servers anymore. Some of this is old email that's sitting around um, on hard drives or um, you know, on portable media. So it's email in many different um, formats, some of them obsolete email clients. Um, and it, so this is email already from the beginning that that's you can't capture in a single in a single way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's that part of the challenge, um, and you know dealing with all the different email clients, the, the different formats is a challenge. Um, but probably the the bigger challenge around email is the that there's a lot of there can be a lot of sensitive data in email, and um, and you know the reason we collect this is, you know, ultimately to make this accessible to researchers right. and, you know, to scholars. And and so we have to figure out 
you know, well, how, how can we, you know, most efficiently process this content and, um, you know, make as much of this access, accessible to researchers as, as we can at the same time, you know, not taking on too much risk or, you know, exposing donors to too much embarrassment or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> because people do, people do think of email as very, very different than they do, you know, with websites that they publish on the web. Mm. People, a lot of times people think their email is, is private and that no one's going to see it, <laughs> which is not, you know, it's, it's not always the case. Do you have to work with a, a, a legal restraints as well? Uh, Speaking yes. of privacy, I'm thinking of privacy now. So oh, there's privacy. there's the there's the ethical part of privacy, but there's probably yeah. a legal side to privacy. There, as there well. are legal sides. There's there's laws, um, you know, FERPA and HIPAA, and uh, there's university policies, and there's all there's all kinds of things. You know, you can't you you can't expose uh, uh, medical records or you know um, uh, things that would identify somebody by social security number and you know things like that. So mm-hmm. There's there are all kinds of legal you know, as well as ethical. <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably not personally involved with that, right? You, you, you're trying to preserve and, and, and enable access to the stuff. Right. We have um, lawyers here that, you know, we work with at the university, but um, we know that there's, because of the amount of email, the, the archivists and curators need to process. They're not, we're not going to be able to identify all the sensitive data. Uh, you know, we're not, we can't... Um, confidently identify everything that you know that we need to restrict um, because of you know certain statutes or, or whatever. But um, so what we're doing is we're treating email as um, all email is potentially sensitive, and and so we're treating it all as sensitive within our repository. Um, but letting curators, you know, if the content uh, warrants um, them reviewing it, you know, in, you know, item by item, if they want to, they can review it and say, there's nothing sensitive about this content. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically take the flag off of it um, so that we know that, you know, once we have a delivery system for this content, that this is something that could be made, you know, right available right away mm-hmm. to people. Tell me about the Zone 1 Rescue Repository. That That's uh, okay. a new one on me, yeah. Yeah, Zone 1. Um, so um, so here at, at Harvard, we have, um, there's there's a few different, um, repositories. There, you know, we have the DRS, the Long-Term Preservation Repository. We also have some specialized repositories. We have one for social science data sets, and we have the um, DASH, which is the um, kind of the institutional repository, the um, open access, uh, mostly article repository. Um, so there are these, the, there are these individual repositories, but yet there's there's a lot of content at the university that people think is valuable that there's n- there's no place for it. Right now, um, digital content. Um, yeah, digital content. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be um, student work or um, a, uh, a faculty with research content, or there might be um, an archivist might have you know hard drives full of unprocessed content, or there's there's all kinds of digital content that there's there's no place for it right now at the repository, but a lot of it's on unstable media. Or it's on, um, um, it's or it's in places that you know people are, are going to leave and it's going to get lost, or you know they're going to move offices, etc. Um, so what we're starting to think about is how can we best cover the, the whole university, cover all everybody's needs, and so um, Zone One 
is um, we're calling it Zone One Rescue Repository. It's an attempt to build a um, it's a um, repository where the barriers to deposit are very very low. That um, we're, we're trying to figure out what is the minimum that somebody needs to tell you about this content so that you can do something with it, um, and a place that you could that would have a service to get content off of um, unstable or degrading media um, so that you at least have it in this in this repository that can provide um, secure storage you know um, not not full not long-term preservation this isn't meant to be the permanent location for this content so it's, it's kind of a holding area to, to stabilize the content but that would pr provide services um, for instance for archivists to look at the content and evaluate it to um, to see if something needs or or they think something should be preserved long term, and then there there would be ways to um, to to um, move it to a more long term preservation repository, or a researcher could look at this um, this co the content in this repository and, and decide to to reuse some of it and pull some of out some of it out for you know for their own um, teaching purposes or research. So that's basically what it is. It's, it's kind of, we're trying to fill the gap in um, what we see at the university of needs that aren't yet made or met and how it could kind of serve uh, as um, um, to move content to the more appropriate repositories. Yeah, that sounds terrific. Is there a lot of stuff? Um, in it? Yeah. It, it, there, there's, there's no repository yet. It, oh. So we, we actually just got funded to, um, to start working on this. Um, it's part of this. There's an initiative called Library Lab here at the university, and there's um, there um, it's kind of a funding program where anybody at the university can propose an idea, um, an innovative idea for the library, and um, then I think there's a couple rounds a year, um, and so this this was we submitted this idea and it and it did get funding. So we're just we're just beginning the project now. But do you imagine yeah. do you, do you imagine that? Uh as you said, for Zone One, there's there are repositories for for set purposes, and Zone One is kind of for not the orphan stuff, but the stuff that doesn't have its own repository just yet. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that there's a lot of content that it will, will end up with a lot of content? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard, you know, I've heard different opinions about this that you know, no one's going to use it, or it's going to get overrun. <laughs> <laughs> So I think what we're doing is um, what we're trying to tackle first is the um, is trying to make it as easy to use as possible. So so we're not putting up any gates initially is the idea, and that what we're going to do is we're going to going to first make it extremely easy to use. Um, that's the intention anyway, and then and then start to look at the policy and and you know do do we need to put up some you know, uh, terms of use or um, inform people about the policy of, you know, when records will be deleted, et cetera. So. You know, just in talking to you during this conversation, it strikes me that even from going back to when you're studying architecture, that you, there's this theme of of looking to the future and, and accessibility and, and utility, like ongoing utility. Is there... Is there something that's got you excited now about, uh, you know, of all the things that you've, you, you're involved with, uh, and it sounds like you have a lot of simultaneous projects, mm -hmm. um, anything have you real excited right now? 
Well, that the zone one definitely does have, have me very excited. Um, so, so partly that, and partly um, um, just thinking about the the infrastructure needed to do digital preservation. Um, thinking about you know how do we interconnect all these tools, the the format registry, the um, format identification tools, the you know, migration tools that we need. How, how do we build this infrastructure, this common utility that all of us um, digital preservation practitioners can use? That 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 whole concept, you know, I, I'm I'm that has me very interested in trying to figure out, you know, how how can we as a community move towards actually getting that thing? Because it, it's not just a technical problem; it's also um, kind of a a, so, a social challenge in a way to keep us all interested in in working towards that common set of tools mm -hmm. because you know local interests and requirements can be very powerful and you know we we all have these things that are specific to our institutions but at the same time we have these very common um, set of needs in digital preservation and, and I think if we put a lot of attention on, on getting that then then we'll go really far I think in, in you know solving our, our problems have you gotten a lot of encouragement, you know, during the during the past decade? As far as are you encouraged by things that you see, progresses that that has been made within the digital preservation community? I think there's been a lot of progress made in in tools, um, format identification, and some of the preservation planning. And I, I think the the Scape project, the um, EU funded project to to, to make our tools more scalable. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot of promise. Um, but at the same time, I, I think we're still in the infancy of all of these tools, and we do have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. This seems like a good place to end. All right. Thank you so much for being okay. so generous with your time. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.